Some of you have been to our house back in the pre-pandemic days when the church was still meeting there. But for those of you who haven't, I'll just explain that we have a big pull-out drawer to the right of our sink that holds two big trash cans. One is for trash, if you can believe it. The other, though, is not for recycling, as things often are in some houses. The recycling in our house usually gets piled up on the windowsill of the window right next to the door out to the garage until somebody gets their act together and takes it out. But no, in our drawer, the second big trash can is for compost because we are weird hippies. So any compostable fruit and vegetable scraps, coffee grounds, that sort of thing, uh, we put in that can. We have a lid for that can because if we didn't, um, our house would have a distinct odor to it, let's say. <laughs> and so every couple weeks, I hoist the shockingly heavy, mostly full compost can out behind our backyard office shed where we have a compost pile covered by a tarp. I pull back the tarp on what looks more or less like a pile of dirt with vegetable scraps poking out of it, and I dump on top of it the contents of our compost can. Now, I'm not going to go into too much graphic detail for the weak of heart and or stomach out there, but let's just say there is a lot of liquid left over in vegetable scraps that have been steeping for a week or two. And again, it, it don't smell too good. The reason I only do this once every couple weeks or so and wait until the can is so heavy I can barely wrestle it out across the yard is that this is a particularly unpleasant chore. It ranks right alongside cleaning the toilet in a bathroom used, let's just hypothetically say, mostly by two young boys whose aim is uh, still being refined. It's gross enough each time to have me questioning the wisdom of committing to this composting thing in the first place. But then... Those of you who have been to our house also know that we have a garden. This year, I wasn't as on top of things in years past, so the yield was not terribly impressive, but we still did have a fair number of different types of crop, small though they might have been. Uh, we still had tomatoes, a couple types of squashes slash pumpkins, kohlrabi, purple kohlrabi. It was very pretty. A couple watermelons. I really want to figure out how to grow more watermelons in future years. Arugula and fennel, which apparently is a real favorite for earwigs, as I found out when I went to harvest one of them. Uh, the fennel didn't get eaten after that discovery, <laughs> but fennel does make these bright yellow tiny flowers when it goes to seed that the bees really like. In fact, both the arugula and fennel, we let go to seed because the explosion of little white and yellow bee-friendly flowers that came from it. Each spring, I uncover our compost pile and I spread the results of a year's worth of disgusting chores over the surface of the garden then dig it into the soil, restoring the create, creative and nurturing capacity of our garden in the process so that it is ready then to support a whole nother year's worth of vegetables and flowers, a whole nother year of beauty and life and deliciousness, which makes the unpleasantness along the way at least a little bit worth it. The section of Romans that's drawing to a close this week, chapters 9 through 11, it begins with the unpleasantness. Paul's emotional anguish over what is wrong in his world, his deep pain over the fate of his friends and family and fellow Jews who have rejected the Messiah, Jesus. We may not feel that sort of pain over the same topic like Paul did, nor should we. This is not our family that we're talking about. But we do know what it's like to have something in our corner of the world, our vocational world, our relational world, where things just aren't as they should be. Not in a small way, but in a big way. Something that stinks like compost soup. <laughs> Many of Meredith and my examples of this come from the church staff world for obvious reasons. Like the time Meredith got fired from an ostensibly egalitarian church that she had only been at for a couple of months because the senior pastor didn't like her. 
Like that was the actual reason given. While at the same time, a neo-Calvinist misogynist was allowed to continue on telling the young women of the church that God wanted them to find a husband and park themselves in the kitchen. Or the time a few years back when a scandal engulfed a fairly prominent church some of you may have heard of called Willow Creek, and the official party line was to defend the church at all costs, and anyone who questioned the official response or was uncomfortable with the way power was being used to control and lie through the crisis, well, to make a long story short, they just happened to end up not employed by that particular church within a year or so. We also catch more than a whiff of rottenness, of course, in the newspaper headlines every single day. And again, of course, we, like Paul, are probably most anguished when the decay creeps into our own family and friend circles. We all have things in our worlds that leave us crying out with Paul in Romans 9-2. I have great sorrow and endless pain in my heart. The specifics might change, but the feeling, it's the same. It's the feeling that arises anytime we find ourselves longing for the world to be made new for it to fully reflect God's character and be as it should be. Anytime it smells more like compost than flowers. Anytime it looks more like decay than life. I'd like to invite you to pause just for a minute here in this podcast to bring to mind the things that seem rotten in your world, the things that cause you great anguish alongside Paul, the things that just aren't as they should be, and that you can see the impact that rottenness has on your life or in the lives of those you care about or in the world that you care about. Take a minute to reflect on that and then restart the podcast. Well, that is how this third main section of the letter begins, with Paul acknowledging the effect that the brokenness of the world has had on him personally. And then after his long and often elliptical argument about God's deeper plans for Israel and the Gentiles as revealed in Jesus, the section ends like this. This is Romans 11 verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. We cannot search his judgments. We cannot fathom his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has given him counsel? Who has given a gift to him which needs to be repaid? For from him, through him, and to him are all things. Glory to him forever. Amen. I suppose that one way to read this at the end of the discussion Paul has been having is that Paul's basically saying, and anyone who doesn't agree with me can shove it because God is so far beyond us humans that you don't even understand. But I think that that would be to ignore the fuller context here. Paul has just spent three whole chapters addressing the issue that causes him such pain, exploring and reasoning through not why people should just deal with it and not question God, but rather exploring what God is up to in and through Jesus and how that addresses and resolves the issue in surprising ways, how God has deeper plans in motion that didn't appear on the surface. The story Paul has told in Romans is one of God being confronted over and over with human unbelief and sin, with the rottenness of the world and finding a way to accomplish the goal anyway. And in that light, it makes perfect sense for Paul to end here, praising the incomparable wisdom and goodness of a God who is faithful to their promise to bring life and renewal to a world that is so often rotten. In fact, the verse that he quotes, Isaiah 40, 13, asking who has known the mind of the Lord or who has given him counsel. In Isaiah, it is set right alongside verses describing God's creative power and intimate knowledge of creation. God's wisdom is so far beyond humanity's, but the point is not for humanity to shut up and know their place. The point is for humanity to trust that God will somehow make things right. 
usually in ways we never would have expected or seen coming or even could have possibly imagined. Paul looks at the mystery revealed in the person of Jesus, what Jesus's life, death, and resurrection mean for the family members he grieves for and for the world that groans for renewal. And Paul shakes his head in awe at the wisdom of God, finding a way through the intractable problems of human rebellion and apathy. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. We cannot search his judgments. We cannot fathom his ways. Glory to God forever. Those things we brought to mind earlier, they don't just bring us pain and heartbreak over the state of the world. They also challenge our faith. Not in the intellectual sense, maybe, but in the deeper heart and trust sense, the emotional gut level where the reality of rottenness causes us to wonder if God is quite as good as they're made out to be. That deeper inner question of, to use my own examples, is this God really who the Bible says they are when the history of the church and the reality of the church today is so full of rottenness? When the people of God, who are supposed to be the image of God, seem so far from who they're supposed to be? This is the question Paul is wrestling with too. If Israel seems to have rejected Jesus, and all Paul himself believes about Jesus means that they have therefore walked away from God, how can we say that God is faithful? God chose Israel, made promises to Israel, but now Israel has just walked away, which means they aren't experiencing the fulfillment of the promises. Where is the faithfulness in that? Paul wrestles with this question for chapters, arriving at the somewhat obvious conclusion, since examples of it are all through the Old Testament, that the majority of Israel has always walked away from God, but that God continues to be faithful to a remnant who believe. But then he also arrives at the more surprising conclusion that God's long-term plans include the inclusion of the Gentiles leading to the jealousy for the Jews, who will then return and believe again, or again, a remnant will. That God knew Israel would walk away, used their unfaithfulness to accomplish the goal of bringing the Gentiles in, and then will use that to bring a remnant of Israel back again. And this realization blows Paul's mind. The creativity and faithfulness and insight of it all. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. We cannot search his judgments. We cannot fathom his ways. Glory to God forever. Our world, like Paul's, is rotten. Not always, not everywhere, but in ways too big and important to ignore. In ways that rightly cause us anguish and pain in our hearts and make us wonder what in the world God is up to. Paul's words here remind us of three crucial truths. First, that God sees it too. God smells the rottenness and is just as committed, actually is far more committed than us to see things restored to wholeness and life. Second, that God, in their inscrutable wisdom, their unfathomable knowledge, their inexhaustible creativity, is at work. That plans are in motion, victories being won, groundwork being laid, that we can't even comprehend as of yet. Like how taking decaying vegetables and throwing some dirt and a tarp on top sounds ridiculous, but somehow results in life. Like how the execution of a wandering Jew from the backwater of Nazareth somehow broke the power of death forever. Third, that part of what it means to trust in this Jesus is to trust that those first two things are true and that whatever the pain point is for us, whatever the rottenness is in our world, that there will come a day when we will look back on it all 
God's mysterious work will have been revealed to us and we will marvel at the wisdom and insight and creativity of our God who has put it all right again. When we will say with Paul in response to it all, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. We cannot search his judgments. We cannot fathom his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has given him counsel? Who has given a gift to him which needs to be repaid? For from him, through him, and to him are all things. Glory to him forever. Amen. I wonder if I might invite you to imagine that day. Taking the things that came to mind a few minutes ago, where you have pain over the rottenness in the world around you, and imagining what it will be like when those things have been made new. When God's mysterious creativity is revealed and you marvel at the wisdom of our God. What does that look like? What will it feel like? What words come to mind? I would invite you to reflect on that and to use it to enhance your faith, your trust that our God just might bring that about. Glory to God forever. Amen.